It is Memorial Day, and each Memorial Day I'm reminded of the Scripture that says that uh, there's no greater love, no greater love has any man or any woman or any person than this, that they would lay down their life for the brethren. And we know that lots and lots and lots of people have laid down their lives uh, in American history for the sake of us enjoying the freedom that we have to go to church where we want to go to church, when we want to go to church, the type of church we want to. We have freedom of worship in this nation today because people have laid down their lives and fought for our freedom, and we owe them great gratitude today. Amen? We certainly do. But there's one greater than that, and his name is Jesus And Jesus came a little over 2,000 years ago, and he laid his life down for you and me. He laid his life down for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're a Christian today, we owe everything we have and everything we are and everything we will forever be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand clap of praise this morning? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Why do we believe that? This has been a series uh, that we've been in now for several months, and as I shared with you last week, I can see the end from here. I- I'm wrestling with the decision whether to finish up the series with a few messages on eschatology, that is, the end times, and I've just not yet got my answer from the Lord whether we're going to go into that or finish up our study of doctrine, our systematic theology study, with the doctrine of the church. And I've got one more message on the doctrine of the church that, Lord willing, we'll get in next Sunday. But today we're in part three of the doctrine of the church. Why is it so important to know doctrine? Because doctrine is our belief system. Belief system drives our thought system. Our thought system drives our action System And how we think is how we act and how we behave and how we live life. And if you want to fix your behavior, fix your thinking. And if you want to fix your thinking, change what you believe. Change what you believe. Today, we'll be picking up where we left off last week, uh, studying about what the Word of God teaches us about the church. Um, The belief about the church is probably one of the broadest spectrums of thoughts there is. Any nation you want to visit on planet earth, you will find churches everywhere, of every denomination, of every belief system, and and, and many churches will do things so different from one another. And that's okay. That is truly okay. As long as what you're doing as a church lines up with Scripture. Lines up with Scripture. It doesn't matter if you have hanging lights from the ceiling. It doesn't matter if you have fluorescent lights. It doesn't matter what kind of lighting you have. It doesn't matter if you have hymn books or you have words on the screen. It doesn't matter if you have drums or no drums or piano and organ. It doesn't matter whether the ladies wear dresses or they wear dress pants or they wear skirts or they wear jeans. It doesn't matter if the preacher wears a suit or not. It doesn't matter if Joes wear overalls. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is, are we believing the Bible? Are we teaching the Bible? And are we following what the Bible teaches us? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to allow the Word of God to tell us what church is, what church is about, and what churches ought to be doing to bring glory and honor 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. So far, last week, uh, we allowed the Bible to define the church as the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. From the moment God said, let there be light, until we hear the trump of God sound, until we're captured out of here and gone to be with glory, until the final day of Revelation 20 comes to pass and the final judgment is over and we inherit eternal life and others inherit eternal damnation in the place of hell, there has been and there forever will be a church. And the church includes every human being that has ever believed in God and trusted God and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The church is the community of all true believers. Say true. All true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. The Lord's church. The Lord's church is made up of those who truly love Jesus Christ. The Lord's church is made up of those whom Christ loves and who Jesus died for and who Jesus saved for the purpose of displaying His glory in this fallen world. We also examine the nature of the church, the attributes of the church. We looked at several metaphors. We looked at several word pictures of how the church is described in Scripture. And so today... What we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at the nuts and the bolts of the visible church. Remember last week we talked about the we talked about the invisible, the universal church, and we talked about the the visible church. The invisible church being everyone who is a part of the Lord's church uh, ever. Uh, as far past backwards as we can look and as far forward as we can look, the universal church includes all believers of all times. And then we have the visible church that you and I can see with our eyes, the visible church who gathers in fellowships like this all around the planet and worshiping God and trusting God as Lord and Savior. So today we're going to look at the nuts and bolts of the visible church because we need to know what God's Word says about ordering our lives together in the context of the Lord's church and primarily right here in this fellowship, Hope in Christ Fellowship. Author and theologian David Wells in his 1994 book says, uh, says this. He said, seminary students are dissatisfied with the current status of the church. I know a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the current status of the church, don't you? But David Well said in his book, God in the Wasteland, that seminary students in general are dissatisfied with the current status of the church. They believe it has lost its vision and they want more from it than it's giving them. Well, that's okay. But dissatisfaction isn't enough. You know, there's nothing worse than a critic that has no solution. A critic with no solution is just a noise. Can I get an amen? A critic without a solution is just making noise and taking up space and blowing hot air. As Wells himself agreed, we need something more. We need to recover what the Lord's church is to be and do as found in Scripture. It's not what I think, it's not what you think, it's what God has said. 
Jesus Christ. We know this. He told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is the head. We are the body. Christ is the boss. We are the followers. What Jesus says goes and we follow what Jesus says. Can I get an amen? So what should the distinguishing marks of the church be? There in your listening guide. We're going to begin by looking at the marks of a healthy church. The marks of a healthy church, those identifying factors, those identifying marks of the church. And while Scripture discusses uh, the definition of a church in general, it also discusses the marks, the identifying features of a healthy church too. And, And I want to be a part of a healthy church, don't you? I don't want to just be a part of a church and I don't want to just be a a part of a church that says, hey, I'm going to attend church occasionally when it's convenient. I'm going to check the box, been there, done that. I'm going to go about my life. I want to be a part of a healthy church, a vibrant church, a church that glorifies God, a, a church that loves God with all its heart, soul, mind, and strength, a church that loves its neighbors, all of its neighbors as much as it loves itself. I want to be a part of a church who is giving a lost and dying world the only hope there is, and the only hope there is is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These marks, as we understand them and know them and practice them, they help us be better at being the church. Don't you want to be the best church there is? I'm not talking about as far as the world looking on. I want, to, I want to know in my heart that the church that I'm a part of is as biblically accurate as it possibly can be. Don't you want to be a part of that church? I want to be a biblical church. I want to be a healthy church. And I believe hope in Christ is. We're not a perfect church, but we're a healthy church. We're not a perfect church, but we believe the Bible. We're not a perfect church, but we teach the Bible and we preach the Bible and we follow the Bible being empowered of the Holy Spirit to do so. Paul taught that the pagan temples in Corinth were making their sacrifices to demons and not to God. Not everything that calls itself a church is a church. Paul makes that clear. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of Jewish religious assemblies functioning as synagogues of Satan. Wow! Wow! So, Pastor C., are you saying... There are people gathering today with the label church, but they're actually sacrificing to demons and not to God? Yes. Do do you mean that there are synagogues worshiping Satan and not worshiping Jesus? Yes. In other words, there is a lot of scriptural evidence for false churches or groups claiming the name of God in His church, but they are not filled with believers and they do not preach the truth. And because they're not believers and because they don't preach the truth, they cannot glorify God. The number one reason the church exists is to glorify God. Rest assured, rest assured, God knows what's real and what's not real. Rest assured in that that these false churches will be judged rather than glorified on the last day. The bottom line is this. So-called churches that fail to preach the gospel are not churches. So how does the Bible describe true churches and false churches? Well, the past 500 years or so since the Reformation, 
Christian theologians have primarily settled on two distinguishing marks of a Christian church. Primarily two distinguishing marks of a true biblical church. And those marks are this. The right preaching of the Word of God. The church is established upon the Word of God. The New Testament church is established upon the rock of the Word of God. And not only uh, the right preaching of the Word of God, but the right administration of the ordinances of the church, and the ordinance including baptism, the Lord's Supper, and indirectly church discipline. So I want to look at these. We'll cover a couple of these today. Uh, the first thing I want you to notice is this, the right preaching of the Word of God. Brother Steve, is there a right way and a wrong way to preach the Word of God? You better believe it. What's the right way of preaching the Word of God? You preach it as it is written. You preach it as it is written. You preach it as a spiritual book. And you live it as being led by the Holy Spirit of God who wrote the book. The preaching of the Word of God is central to the church's life because it's the primary means. Now, church, get get this. You have in me a long-winded preacher. Can I get an amen? Brother Steve, why do you talk so much when you get up there? Because the right preaching of the Word of God is the primary means by which God creates and imparts spiritual life to His people. And y'all need a lot of help. I'm just being honest with you. Y'all are awfully needy when it comes to spiritual matters. And I'm the chief among you, right? I need the Word of God. Listen to me. We are begotten. That is, we are drawn to God through the Holy Spirit, but we're drawn to God by the Word of God. We are saved by the Word of God, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. We are drawn to God through His Word. We are saved by His Word. We are kept by His Word. And we grow by His Word. If you're a born-again believer, and your diet of the Word of God is only what I give you on Sunday, you're pitiful. At best, you're pitiful. You cannot grow on that diet of spiritual food. Well, Brother Steve, I listen to music. That's wonderful. It'll grow you a little bit. Brother Steve, I pray a couple times during the week. That's wonderful. Spend time with God. That'll grow you a little bit. But if you want to grow, you get in the Word of God. And you stay in the Word of God. And and not only what I'm giving you on Sunday, you get in the Word of God the other six days of the week and you have a good, steady, full diet of the Word of God because the Word of God is the primary means by which God creates and imparts spiritual life to His people. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, God created the entire material universe by His Word. He spoke it into existence, didn't He? That's the power of God's Word. Well, Brother Steve, are you saying that the Bible are the words of God. Yes, yes. 
But men pinned them and wrote them down. Yes, as God whispered it in their ears, as God whispered it in their minds, as God whispered it into their hearts and their beings, they wrote down word for word what God told them to write down. The Bible is God's word. God spoke it and inspired men wrote it down and we have it recorded for us today. The word is the primary importance of the church. He later gave his law to his chosen people, Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy 32 and 47, it says, For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Say my very life. Your very life, your eternal life hangs upon the word of God. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this world you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. How? Through his word. He continued to speak his words through the prophets, guiding and correcting his people. So it shouldn't surprise us at all, church. It should not surprise us that God's word remains central to the church in the New Testament. Can I get an amen? 1 Corinthians 1 and 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We're saved through the preaching of the Word of God. And not limited to the pulpit preaching of the Word of God, but you, every member is a minister. You preach the Word of God. You share the Word of God. You share your faith with other people. That's the only way human beings get saved is through the declaration of the Word of God. Right preaching is the identifying mark of a true church. Romans chapter 10 Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that not one of the greatest promises you've ever heard? Everybody, say everybody. Everybody, doesn't matter rich or poor, black or white, red, brown, yellow, doesn't matter male or female, rich or poor, from this side of the world, that side of the world, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10 and verse 14. How then will they call on him? So it's important for the word to go out because how can anyone call on the Lord to be saved if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The purpose of the church is to fill heaven up to capacity. That's the purpose of the church. Preach the Word of God. See people saved. Baptize those saved people. Teach them to obey everything God has commanded us, knowing that God is forever with us this side of heaven and will certainly be with us in glory. And then Paul sums it up in verse 17. So faith comes from what? And hearing through what? The Bible. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is guaranteed to be saved. But how can they call on Him if they've not heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him if no one is preaching His Word? They have to be faith. For by faith through grace, through gra- by grace through faith, you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. Where does faith come from? 
Bro, Steve, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, but I just want you to know my faith is weak and my faith is low and I just don't have much faith. How much Word of God are you taking into your life? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the Word of God. Hearing the Bible. For Paul, the right preaching of the Word was the most important thing. The central and most important mark of a godly church, a pure church, a healthy church, is the right preaching of and prioritizing God's Word. The preaching and the priority of God's Word. God tells us time and time and time again in the Bible that we're to be dependent upon His Word both individually and as families and as communities, but as a church. So in many ways, in many ways, the the proper handling of Scripture in the teaching and the preaching ministries of the local church, listen, it's a prerequisite to every other mark of health and purity in the church. Why? Because if the preaching is wrong, everything will be wrong. Can I get an amen? If the preaching is wrong, everything will be wrong. If the preaching is right, many things will still be wrong, but it'll be as good as it can be. It's only by placing a priority on teaching and hearing the Word of God that we'll be able to, as a church, to make biblical decisions about how to sustain the worship, the disciplines, the ordinances of a Christ-honoring church. So briefly, briefly... What what does the right preaching of the Word of God look like? The right preaching of the Word of God will always be focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Right preaching of the Word of God is always focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It always commends Jesus and the gospel. In other words, hey, it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. When when you get that out of whack, they ain't no getting no more out of whack than that. When, When you make preaching about you, it's not right preaching. When I make preaching about me, it's not right preaching. But when preaching is all about Jesus, it's right preaching. This is at the heart of the message of Scripture that God sent His only begotten Son to suffer God's wrath for man's sin so that they can call upon His name and have eternal life. If we miss this, we miss the fundamental point of the Word of God. The right preaching of God's Word exalts God Himself. The right preaching of the Word of God endeavors to preach all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God. The good parts, the sad parts, the wonderful parts, the incriminating parts, the convicting parts, the comforting parts. You preach the whole counsel of God regardless of who likes it. You preach Jesus. And you preach it and you let it land where it lands. And you let it accomplish what only it can accomplish. The whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 All, say all. All Scripture is breathed out by who? 
Yes, all scriptures be that by God and profitable for teaching. It's profitable. It's worth something. It's worth all the money in the world. It's worth more than all the money in the world. It's worth more all than the treasure in the world. The word of God is God breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The teaching, the reproving, the correcting, the training comes from where? The Word of God. Through this, God's people grow, and we grow by His Spirit, and we are more conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. God saved you to make you just like Jesus. We learn more about who God is, and we learn more about our fallen state. I sadly informed every one of y'all last week that you are a mess, and I am a mess, and we're all a mess, and God's Word helps straighten out our messes. It's by God's Word, by God's Word. We learn more about who God is, and we learn more about our fallen state and condition under God's righteous judgment. And we learn how to follow God in obedience and to not sin against Him. I have hid your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, Psalm 119 says. All in all, churches must, churches must be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, if we're going to be faithful to the calling of God. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul told Timothy, until I get there, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In other words, Paul is telling this young pastor, hey, spend all the time you have publicly reading and preaching and teaching Scripture, exhorting people, encouraging people, and you teach the Word of God. That's what you must be about, the Father's business. Now then, That's the right preaching of the Word of God. Now let's talk about ordinances, the ordinance of the church. Now we'll just cover baptism today. Next week we'll pick up on the second ordinance of the church, uh, which is the Lord's Supper communion. But for now, baptism. Baptism is the first ordinance of a healthy Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church. Baptism. Why is baptism important? Why is baptism essential? Why is it necessary? Because baptism is an act of obedience. Say obedience. I've said this my entire life as a preacher and a pastor. Once God has gloriously saved you, the very first act of obedience that you should act on is water baptism. And if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. And you need to be baptized as soon as possible. That's how we publicly profess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why God designed baptism. It's telling the entire world, as you're walking into that watery grave, you're telling the entire world, I was born into this world dead in my trespasses and sins, therefore I'm going to my grave. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ loved me and died for me, and he also went to a grave, but he didn't stay there. He was resurrected on the third day, and he's now sent the right hand of the Father, and he has gloriously saved me. So I'm going to go into this grave as a dead man, as a dead woman, but as I go under the water, it's representing my death in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when I come up out of the water, I am representing the water's not doing anything for you other than making you wet. But as you come up out of that watery grave, you're telling the whole world, God has resurrected me to new life, and I have eternal life, and I'm going to spend eternity with Him. And in the meantime, I'm going to bring Him glory and honor through my obedience, beginning with this water baptism. Scripture commands baptism. Baptism is not an option. Scripture commands baptism. But there's been a lot of confusion as to the significance of water baptism. And that confusion over the meaning of baptism has led a lot of unbiblical teaching about who is to be baptized and how they are to be baptized. So let's go to Scripture. Let's go to the Bible. And let me give you three statements about baptism that we find in the Word of God. There's three biblical statements about water baptism. The first one is this. Only believers should be baptized. Only believers should be baptized. So it's important. It's really important to understand that Scripture itself teaches. Scripture indicates that a conscious profession of faith in Christ always precedes baptism. Why? Because baptism is the outward sign of our inward obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's impossible to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ without first being saved and born again. Here's a couple of examples there in your listening guide. Acts 2.41, those who accepted the message were baptized. Acts 8.12, when they believed, after they believed, when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news, they were baptized. Only believers are to be baptized. I want you to notice that it's after Philip shares the message of Scripture with the Ethiopian eunuch, particularly the good news about Jesus, that the Ethiopian requests baptism, saying in Acts 8.36, Look, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And in all these passages, and many others just like them, Those being baptized, again, are giving an outward indication of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts before they're baptized. In the New Testament, only those who personally profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are baptized. Now, this truth, on its face value, disqualifies infants from being baptized. Because infants are incapable of making a public profession of faith. And in the entire New Testament, in the entire New Testament, you'll never find the church baptizing infants. They're only baptizing those who are capable of speaking the words, I am a believer in Christ. I have been changed by the power of Christ. I am a Christian. The controversy over who should be baptized involves a more considerable difference over the meaning of baptism and the nature of the church. In other words, how does someone become a part of the church? 
How does someone become a part of the church? Roman Catholics argue that baptism itself regenerates you. The churches of Christ teach that water baptism is part of the process of regeneration, and without water baptism, you cannot and are not saved. They teach that the physical act of baptizing itself conveys grace on the one being baptized regardless of the intent or the beliefs of the person being baptized. That it has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with believing. If you'll just go forth and be baptized, you'll be regenerated. In other words, you'll be saved. There's only one problem with this argument. It's not the truth. Because the Bible doesn't teach it. And I'm going with the Bible. I'm going with the Bible. If I go to heaven, I'm going to heaven with the Bible. If I'm delusional and wind up in hell, I'm going to hell with the Bible. But I'm 100% certain that the Bible is the Word of God, and I'm 100% certain I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to the heaven following the Word of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that I left out, cannot, cannot, absolutely cannot tell it any plainer than it is. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, where is water baptism mentioned in that portion of Scripture? It's not. Because regeneration, salvation, is an inward work of God Himself through the preaching of the Word of God. We saw a while ago, where does faith come from? From hearing the Word of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves. Getting wet is of yourself. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. God gives you faith as you hear the Word of God. You exercise that faith. God shows you much grace. You're a sinner. You deserve hell. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. For by grace you have been saved. By God's grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Protestant congregations such as Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians who practice infant baptism argue that the baptism of a child born into a believing family makes that child a member of the covenant community and that infant baptism symbolizes probable future regeneration but does not confer salvation as the Roman Catholics believe. So, The Protestant churches that practice infant baptism, they're not saying it saves the child. Much like we here at Hope in Christ, we do baby dedications. We know those babies are a gift from God, don't we? And we publicly bring those babies forward, and mom and dad commits to train them up in the way they should go. 
They, they commit to bringing them to church and to Bible studies, and they commit to teaching in the home uh, the Word of God and living right before them and the church uh, covenants with those parents and says, we'll do our part as a faith community. And we come together and we say, God, thank you for this child. It, 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 was, it was always yours. It'll forever be yours. And we covenant now with our faith family that we're going to raise this baby in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, that's similar to infant baptism. We just don't put water on them because babies get wet all by themselves all the time, don't they? These congregations, they base arguments for infant baptism by speaking of such things as household baptisms. Joe, we talked about this Wednesday night. The house of Cornelius, Peter, was sent for. Uh, and, and Peter came and he preached to the household of Cornelius and his whole household believed and his whole household was baptized. And they say, see there, that entire household, and there had to be a baby in there, therefore we ought to baptize babies. But the Bible doesn't say there was a baby in the household, and the Bible doesn't say they baptized babies. It said his whole household. They say that the baptism of households noted in the New Testament means that infant children were baptized. But if you explore the rest of the Bible and you put all that in the context, we find no conclusive scriptural support for non-believers, which would be an infant. Infants grow up to be children who need to be saved. Can I get an amen? And once they're saved and believe and are able to make a profession of faith, then we baptize them. Some will reach back all the way into the Old Testament and say infant baptism is the New Testament way of circumcision. In the Old Testament, they circumcised male children to identify them with the covenant group of Jews, the Israelites. And so they conveyed that over and they believe, well, we're going to baptize infants here just like they circumcised infants there. But guess what? Circumcision didn't save anybody, did it? And neither does water baptism. So on that thought, on that thought, Boy, I left out a whole lot of stuff for you guys. Number one, circumcision in the Old Testament was given to all who lived among the people of Israel. Now get this. Believer or non-believer, good or evil, rich or poor, it didn't matter. If you was born into the Israelite people, you got circumcised. So if we're going to compare apples to apples, then everybody born into a Christian family would be baptized. But would that make them Christian? No. So that's why we don't practice infant baptism. Number two, the only covenant community discussed in the New Testament is the church. Whereas entrance into the old covenant community was by physical birth. So you became part of the covenant community in the Old Testament simply by being born physically. But Jeremiah 31 tells us that the new covenant community will be those who have God's law written on their hearts. So entrance into the kingdom of God comes how, church? Through the new birth through the new birth, by being saved from the inside out. So we're only going to baptize. We're only going to baptize people who are of age 
who profess knowing that they've experienced God through the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, the conversion power of the Word of God, they've been regenerated, they've been saved and born again. Those are the people, and those are only the people that we're going to baptize. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. So can I get an amen? B, believers should be baptized how? By immersion. Just a quick question. Let's just take a poll right quick. When you die... Do you want to be buried all the way under the ground or do you want part of you left sticking up? I'm going all the way down, right? Baptism is symbolic of being buried. Can I get an amen? And so we bury people all the way under the ground, right? And on resurrection day, Jesus is going to resurrect them all the way out of the ground. And that's why we do baptism the way we do baptism. Every clear example of baptism that the Bible gives us is the method or the mode of baptizing people by immersion. Believers are to be baptized by immersion. We teach this in our hope classes. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo, and it's used in most every passage concerning water baptism. And that word, the Greek word, means to plunge, to dip, to immerse something under water. Under water. Reminds me of a good joke I heard this morning. Chris and Andy recently had a wedding anniversary. And Chris had said years ago, you know, I've been married nine years. He said, seems like it's only been nine minutes underwater. Now, he's just joking. He loves her. It seems like it's only been nine seconds above water living in paradise. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. Absolutely. To plunge, to dip, to immerse something under water. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 5. All and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's gospel also tells us that John the Baptist was baptizing people at Anon, location Anon. Why? Because the Bible says there was plenty of water there. Now the need for plenty of water wouldn't be an issue if these people were just being sprinkled, right? They wanted to be somewhere where the water was deep enough that they could be dipped under, absolutely be dipped under. In Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 39, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. Prop prevents me from being baptized. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Two observations here, two very clear observations here. We're told that the Ethiopian is on his way home from Jerusalem to Africa. That's a long trip. It's mostly desert. He's going to get thirsty. He's got water in the chariot. Right? He's got water in the chariot. So why, why, would there have been a need for them to get out of the chariot and go down into the water 
Because if the New Testament church was all about sprinkling, why would Philip not just have borrowed the Ethiopian's canteen and poured a little water in his hand and sprinkled him and said, you're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because John the Baptist started baptizing in the River Jordan and he was dipping people all the way under the water and all the way out of the water. And it's practiced all throughout the New Testament. Ultimately, ultimately, folks, why is baptism so important? You say, Brother Steve, why are you hammering this so hard? Because the symbolism of our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection requires baptism by immersion. Jesus died all the way dead. They placed Jesus all the way into the tomb. They rolled the stone all the way over the door. And on the third day, God rolled the stone all the way off of the door, and Jesus came all the way out of the tomb, and He ascended all the way to heaven and sat down on His throne for all of eternity. And that's why we baptize the way we baptize. Because we was all the way born dead into the trespasses of our sins in this life. We were dead, absolutely dead. And we go into that watery grave all the way under and all the way out, symbolizing that God has saved us completely and thoroughly, and we're making a thorough profession of faith. Consider Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice that baptism by sprinkling doesn't supply the picture of being buried and resurrected, does it? Baptism by immersion gives the rich symbolism of washing away our sins. 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The third thing about baptism Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Say not necessary. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but is a symbolic act of obedience that expresses one's faith in and submission to Christ. Baptism is not required for salvation. I'll say it one more time. Baptism is not required for salvation, but it is an essential part of obedience to Christ since He commanded all those who believe to be baptized. If you'll think back when we were teaching through the doctrine of salvation, you'll remember that regeneration precedes faith. Baptism is commanded for those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm regenerated and converted, I'm immediately justified before God and justification is a permanent event. And since baptism follows this immediate and permanent process of my sins being forgiven and coming to new spiritual life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot logically say that baptism is required for salvation. If I'm saved by grace through faith and that not of myself, then water baptism is not necessary for salvation. But water baptism is necessary to demonstrate our love for 
in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's baptism in a nutshell. It's simply a public testimony of God's work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it? It's a visible way for us to identify ourselves as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, making clear our allegiance to Jesus and to His commandments. I'll say this and I'll finish. Michelle, you all come on up this morning. Because baptism is a clear and outward sign of obedience, and refusal of baptism is apparent and external disobedience, baptism here at Hope in Christ Fellowship is a prerequisite for membership in a church that believes the Bible, and we believe the Bible. In our membership class, in the last session of our membership class, we teach water baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is very necessary for church membership because if you refuse to follow the Lord's first commandment, then most likely you'll refuse to follow most of His commandments. Can I get an amen? But if you're willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, in water baptism, then you're most likely to follow all of His commands. Let's stand together this morning.